The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. Hey guys, welcome back to If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. So tonight we've got a uh, special guest in the uh, tiny bedroom studio. We have Daniel Maine, who you guys may recognize uh, from the Murder and Mayhem walk on the Salem Square. Uh, we've played a, a clip from that on a bonus episode of this, uh, this show before. Uh, we also played a clip from the uh, Haunted Cemetery tour, correct? What's what's the proper name of that? Uh, we just call it the Cemetery Walk. Cemetery Walk. So. Yeah, excellent. So you played uh, Delos Heffron. Yes. Whose name somehow keeps coming up on the show. I was, oh, he was a character. <laughs> I was talking to uh, both Jeremy and Stephanie, Jeremy Elliott and uh, Stephanie Vines about that, and I was mm-hmm. like, you guys are just breathing life back into him. Like, it's weird stuff's going to start you know, happening. And here's what I think. Every time I talk about him, I'm like, why is he the one whose name is going to live on for generations to come? We're going to forget about everybody else, but this yeah. asshole. He's going to be oh, the can one. I curse on your... <laughs> yeah, you can okay. curse. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. But this asshole, he's going he's gonna to live in infamy forever. Yeah. Not even <laughs> not even his brother, Horace, who, who was arguably maybe potentially worse in, in some aspects, but at yeah. least contributed something. At least contributed something to his community. Right. But yeah, Horace was, or Delos was just, yeah, just a piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There's no other way to say it. There's no other way to say it. Um, so Daniel, if you would, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and your background um, and all that sort of stuff and, and all the things you're involved in in the community. Because I know you do a lot for uh, Salem as well as Washington County in general. Um, and you know, there's going to be people here that 
are from the community that do know you. There's going to be people listening that aren't from the community. And one of the goals of this podcast is to inform people about our community, even if it is very much from a paranormal sort of perspective. So. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Uh, again, I'm Daniel Main. Um, I uh, the main thing I do really in the community, aside from my my job, which is uh, I work at Salem Apothecary and do the home medical equipment. So you might have seen me out. Uh, around town going to set up oxygen or a hospital bed wheelchairs that kind of thing um, but my real passion is my wife and I direct the community children's theater here in Salem um, and we also are um, uh, on the board for the uh, community theater uh, and it was through that thinking about how to do fundraising and things that I came up with the idea of doing a cemetery walk uh, there at uh, Crown Hill Cemetery which is the largest cemetery in Washington County and uh, basically, I just did some research on some individuals who are buried in Crown Hill Cemetery who were influencers in the history of Washington County. So um, we go up once a year in the fall. We have actors from the community theater come and portray the spirits of these characters. And, uh, and then we have tour guides who lead people throughout the cemetery and we get to meet these people. So it's really more of a, an historical look at it not so much of a it's not a scary thing so mm -hmm. you know kids are welcome to come and they will enjoy it too but it's just kind of a historical uh, uh walk through um washington county history and uh um it's just for donations uh but that all goes to uh the community and children's theater to help with uh, their finances and then through that i i got to know jeremy elliott really well um uh he had an idea of doing uh a murder and mayhem walk on the square so he and i got together brainstormed that and we've been doing that for the last couple of years now and uh, uh that's kind of that's that's me in a nutshell really the best the best <laughs> part about it is the, the cemetery walk like if, if somebody's new to washington county or they want to learn about washington county like that's a great place to start i mean obviously the historical society and the the stevens museum john hayes center depot mm -hmm. accuse them of having way too many names uh <laughs> that's a great place to start too but if you don't have time for that if you go on the cemetery walk you're going to get a pretty good idea of Salem and Washington County history when you go on that tour yeah. and the people who are involved in it, for better or worse, usually for better most of the part, but the more scandalous the story, I think the more interested people tend to be of course, a lot of times. Absolutely, so. yeah. No, it is, it's very much like an introductory course to Washington County history and give you just enough to kind of pique your interest. I have a lot of people come back after the cemetery walk and go, tell me more about this guy or that woman or, or you know, and then I usually through that tried to kind of direct them over to Jeremy at the, right. <laughs> at the museum. So hopefully. Go, go bother Jeremy. Yeah, go bother Jeremy. I don't know. <laughs> Leave me alone. He knows all the details. And then the, be the better part of it is the murder and mayhem tour is like, uh, it's the, the amped up dark history of Washington County and not really even amped up. It's just, it's, it's just the history of Washington County, oh, it's, but the dark it's, history it's, of it. And it's all facts. I mean, yeah. we don't, uh, we didn't, um, do any brushstrokes on any no. of that. We're just telling the information as it has been recorded in, in newspapers and, and books and, and letters and things like that. But, uh, yeah, Jeremy, Jeremy's not the historian that you go to and ask for like happy history. No, no, <laughs> it's going to be dark, right? If you don't want to, if you, if you're afraid there might be something questionable yeah. in your family history in Washington County, yeah. don't ask Jeremy. Don't, uh, well, have you met him? He's not the just most jovial person. He's just <laughs> right. Right, he's like, why are we still here? Yeah, everything sucks. Does any of this matter? No, not really. So one of the reasons I want to get you on the show is uh, when we did the Murder and Mayhem tour this year. So you added two bonus stories. 
Uh, the one, the one was about a, a fire department Dalmatian, uh, which is a monument to uh, in Salem, and I believe somebody <laughs> yes. told you on the tour what the monument was. Yes. Um, and I'll let you. I'll let you. Well, mention that real quick. <laughs> no, it was. It was. Uh, it was the funny circumstances. Uh, our murder mayhem tour begins over uh, right behind city hall across from the fire department and we walk right by the fire department on our way to where the uh we generally tell our first story and on my very first tour this year we walk by the firehouse and somebody said um i'm surprised you didn't tell the story oh uh, what's the dog's name do you remember squirt, squirt. he <laughs> said I, i'm surprised you didn't tell the story about squirt and i said what are you talking about he said the the firehouse dog. I said I, I don't I don't know what you're talking about, man. What tell me? <laughs> so he proceeds to tell me this story. He comes up, goes over, and he shows me this little placard that's right there along the Walk road by, by High it. Street. I've walked by it countless times and never even looked down and saw it. But there it is, little concrete placard with squirt on it. And apparently, I don't even know the year, but uh, <laughs> at some point they had this Dalmatian dog, the firehouse dog. They got an emergency call out to a fire. Firemen jump in their gear, put on their uniforms, whatever. Jump in the fire trucks, start them up. Door opens. Out the door they go in the fire trucks. And Squirt is asleep underneath the fire truck. What an appropriate name that is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Poor dog. Oh. <laughs> but tragic. That was So that was a great way to start off because we were on the first tour that you got to tell that one on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the main reason I brought you on uh, is because you had an apothecary story. And yes, we did play the field recording on here. But I wanted to get a, a good clean recording of that as well. Sure. because not And not everybody listens to the bonus episodes anyways or the field recordings because they're not always the greatest recordings in the world. Yeah. Uh, but that led me to believe that maybe you might have had some other stories as well. So um, if you want, we can start right off with the apothecary story. Uh, the, the place where you work and, mm-hmm. and some of the happenings that, that are going on there. Okay. Uh, yeah, as I said, I work at Salem Apothecary, which is on the northwest corner of the Salem Square. Um, it is a pharmacy, but we also uh, do um, home medical equipment. That's where I come in. And um, the building itself was built, I believe, in the mid-1870s. So... By American standards, it's a pretty old building. Right. Um, but uh, it has been a pharmacy ever since the day it was constructed. It has never been any other type of business. It's just been passed down or purchased pharmacist to pharmacist to pharmacist uh, up until its current owner, Rebecca Marshall, who purchased it, I believe, in 1985. And she has been the owner and pharmacist there since that time. Um But back in the early part of the 20th century, there was another female pharmacist by the name of Des Rudder, and uh, she was a graduate of Purdue, and just so happens uh, she was the very first licensed female pharmacist in the state of Indiana. Pretty impressive. And she owned and operated the apothecary there uh, for a number of years. Um, But we are convinced that that she haunts it. I, she did not die in the building. I, I think she died of natural causes, old age, uh, in a nursing home, I think. But uh, but because of some experiences that we continue to have there, it seems there's something very, uh, not sinister, it's it's not that at all. So there's we, Nobody's ever felt threatened, but but she resides there in some aspect. Almost um, a don't forget about me sort of thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, 
I should mention that uh, Rebecca Marshall, the current owner, is also a Purdue graduate. So the two ladies share that commonality between them. Um, one thing that happens now this I, I, this has not happened to me personally, but uh, Rebecca, of course, comes in earlier than the rest of us every morning to kind of get things lights turned right. on, things you know doors unlocked, get ready for the, the day to start. Um, but she says frequently she will hear someone going up the steps to the third floor uh it's actually i call it the third floor it's it'd be actually the second we have a basement a main floor and then uh, an upstairs uh but she hears footsteps going up those stairs and, and somebody walking around up there um one of the th things that i've seen personally uh is we have an old um hand operated freight elevator thing is ancient yeah when you there. mentioned that on the tour that was that yeah, was definitely yeah it's, it's just it's a rope and pulley system and mm -hmm. and uh, that's how i get uh some of the medical equipment like hospital beds and things up and down up rather and down. than try and drag them you know down that stair down those stairs but uh um oftentimes uh we'll be in the uh, pop here there doing work and uh all of a sudden we'll just hear that elevator just going up by itself and you'll go and open the door and it's literally just going up to the third floor there's nobody near the pulley system it's just going on its own um so we joke that that's des um then uh i mentioned they're both purdue uh graduates so our back door it's that goes into the basement from the back alley behind the apothecary mm -hmm. um in order to get in if somebody a visitor wants to come get in there they have to come up and they have to push a button, which sounds an alarm on the main floor. Now, that alarm is the Purdue fight song. <laughs> so you hear the alarm and you go to the I'm back sure of the at pharmacy. This point you're tired of hearing that oh, song. Oh, you have too. no idea. No idea. <laughs> I hate right. the Purdue fight song. Right. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you, hear, you hear the Purdue fight song. So you go to the back of the apothecary where there's a, a, a monitor and you can look and you can see who's standing down there at the door that wants in. And then there's a button that you can push to unlock it for them. Right. And at least once a day, and I, I know it's it's people might be skeptical that it's that frequent, but it really is. <laughs> at least once a day, the Purdue fight song will go off. You'll walk to the back of the pharmacy and look up into the monitor to see who it is to let them in, and there's nobody there. And then again, we just joke. That's just Des wanting it's to Des. hear the Purdue fight song. Um, but possibly the eeriest thing that happened to me personally uh, is a couple of years ago, we had a young lady who worked for us as a uh, pharmaceutical tech. And um, the day of this instance, it was just Rebecca, myself, and this pharmacy tech in the building. There was nobody else there. In fact, there weren't even any customers in at, the, at this time. And... Uh, I had been downstairs, or I was downstairs working on a piece of equipment, when I heard footsteps coming down the steps, and I looked up just in time to see the back of our pharmacy tech as she walked out that back door into the alley and right. closed the door behind her. Well, as soon as she walked out, I was finishing whatever business I was working on there. I finished up, and I walked directly up the stairs and into the pharmacy, and there she stood, the pharmacy tech, talking <laughs> to Rebecca. And I said, didn't I just see you go out the back door? She said, no, I've been standing here the whole been time. Been here the whole time. Now, I would have thought maybe she pulled some kind of a prank on me, 
But there's no way, in order to get from the back to the front of the building, you have to walk around the entire block. Right. There is no yeah. possible, even at a dead-out yeah, sprint. Not a, it's not a short trip. No, yeah. even at a dead-out sprint, she could not have done that and been standing where she was talking to Rebecca. So, I don't know who or what I saw. But there was something. It, there was someone, and it looked like a female. Right. That came down those stairs and went out the back door, and no one else in the entire building. So... Uh, that's my that's my ghost stories for the apothecary. Um, I, I I do wonder, and I, I, uh, I'm gonna have to ask Jeremy, and maybe you know, maybe you don't know. But so I knew the name Des Rudder, and so the name this show somehow always, whether I want it to or not, it always ends up leading back into distilling, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the Rudders actually, and I don't know if it's the same family. This, and I'd be very curious, especially since she became a pharmacist, mm-hmm. uh, and the relationship between distilling and pharmacy in the first place. Sure. Uh, so the Rudders, James Rudder, I believe it was. Um, you may be familiar with Rudder Road. Rudder Road. Okay, I've heard the name of the yes. county. Yep. It used to cut. It used to actually cut out by Beck's Mill. And okay. There's an old bridge foundation on Mill Creek, uh, just down from Beck's Mill, and it went to an old mill that sat right there next to what they used to call uh, the Party Bridge. You're familiar with that out by Beck's okay. Mill. Um, that was Thomas Green's mill and distillery. It was originally Alexander Beck, so George Beck's son. Uh, but when Thomas Green died. James Rudder bought that, and he also bought the distillery. Okay. And I wonder if maybe she had some relationship to him, and maybe she, maybe that's how she found her way into pharmacy. Because a lot of those old <coughs> compounding pharmacies, yeah, they would they would distill certain patent medicines yeah. at the time. So, and what year would that have been? Um, so Thomas Green would have died in 1855. The Rudders, I don't think, took that over until maybe the 1860s or 70s. Okay, they ran it and yep. It burned down at some point. I don't know for sure when it burned down. Um, but yeah, I'd actually I'd be surprised if she's not related. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Same so thing. That's interesting connection there. Yeah. 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 We'll have to we'll have to talk to Jeremy and see if that's the case because right. that would be pretty mm-hmm. cool. So. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we'll uh, we'll break this segment real quick and uh, be right back. Hey, what's up, guys? It's great to be back with If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, Season 2. You might have noticed from the show that we absolutely love to collaborate with our friends. Well, it turns out that some of our good friends in the distilled spirits industry just happen to have delved into my second favorite beverage class, coffee. But not just any coffee. Barrel-aged coffee. Aged exclusively in Kentucky bourbon rickhouses using unique barrels. So when I came across two unique 15-gallon chinkapin oak barrels to use for the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute channel on YouTube, I knew that their next stop would be with John Waddell and Corey Welch of Stave and Bean Coffee Company. The first barrel was second filled with apple wood smoked malted corn whiskey for nine months before unique Brazilian beans were aged prior to their roasting. This is the one piece at a time Distilling Institute brand. Unique, buttery, and slightly smoky. It just turns out that it pairs great with an episode of Distillers Talk podcast. See what I did there? That's cross-marketing. The second barrel had to have a little something special for Kim and I and be part of If You Have Ghosts. 
you have everything. So when a close personal friend approached us about making him some homemade blackberry wine, we jumped all over it. We took that blackberry wine and we added it to that 15 gallon barrel. Then we fortified that wine with some white apple brandy to make a fortified blackberry wine, a blackberry port, if you will. Afterwards, that barrel went down to John and Corey of Staven Bean Coffee Company, where they added some amazing Ethiopian Guji beans, giving us a fruit aroma-filled spiritual experience with our coffee. For if you have ghosts, you have everything. Both of these coffees are exclusive to thealchemistcabinet.com and stavenbean.com, and they'll never be replicated again. Get yours today and enjoy it while you listen to the show. Love y'all. Later. So we're back with If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything with Daniel Main. And uh, I think Daniel was about to get into a uh, another personal story here. Uh, yeah, I, I have another one. Um, this one is actually one that's been passed down through my family for generations. Uh, cool. I remember hearing this. It's an heirloom ghost story. It, it's an heirloom ghost story. <laughs> yeah. this uh, My grandpa told me this story when, oh gosh, I was a, a wee little one. Um but yeah, I, I remember hearing it for most of my life. Uh, it takes place over in Crystal, Indiana, which is a little town on the highway between French Lake and Jasper. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Yep. And uh, it, these are some distant cousins of my mother's. And this, this is back in 1921. Um, the family's last name is Weiniger. And uh, the story centered around the youngest brother of this family, who, if I remember correctly, his name is Clarence. I think that's, I know, I know Weininger's the correct last name. I think it was Clarence Weininger. Um, so anyway, Clarence uh, lives in this house in Crystal, Indiana, with his parents, his older brother, and I can't remember if there are other siblings involved or not, but he's there with his family at the time. And Clarence and his older brother have both been vying for the affection of the same girl. But in the end, Clarence has won out. And in fact, he and this girl have become engaged and are going to be married within just a few days of this incident. Uh, so one night, Clarence has been to visit his fiance and he's walking home. It is, it's, it's late enough that it's already gotten dark and there's a pretty thick fog that has fallen over the community. Um, now, Clarence lives off of the main road. that His family has a house that's at the end of this very long lane. And uh, he has walked from uh, his fiance's house, and he's he's turned down this lane to begin the last part of the journey to his, to his house. And as he's walking along the path... Now, remember, this is 1921, remote community in Indiana, and there, even at this time, there are very few automobiles, so a lot of people still travel... And right. horses, horses and buggies. So he's walking down this lane toward his house and he hears a horse and buggy coming up from behind him. So he steps off the path to let him go by and he hears the horse and buggy pass, but he doesn't see anything. Well, that's not creepy at all. Not yeah. creepy at all. Well, I guess, and, and this is how the story's been passed down, he kind of chalks it up at the moment to, okay, it's dark, it's really foggy. Even though I wasn't that far away, maybe I just somehow it passed by me, and and all of those factors played into yeah. yeah. Exactly. So uh, 
he continues down the lane and as he gets closer to his house the fog begins to dissipate and he can see now there's a fence surrounding the house and on the inside of the fence between the fence and the house he sees someone standing there and he thinks okay this is whomever it was the passing horse and buggy that's come to visit for whatever reason um so he begins to approach and as he gets closer he can see that it's a man and the man is dressed in nothing but his long underwear Odd. All right. Yep. Yeah. A little, little weird. <laughs> so, as he he again he uh, proceeds to to get closer, the man extends his hand like this, and when he does, his hand falls off of his body onto the ground. Wow. At that point, Clarence gets a good visual of who this is, and he notices, he realizes that he's looking at himself. He's seeing himself standing there in long underwear hand falling off the body onto the ground and there's a bullet hole and blood dripping from this apparition's abdomen. Clarence freaks out, obviously. Runs through the gate, past the apparition, into the house where he proceeds to wake up everybody in the family and in just a panic tells them what just happened to him. Well, of course, you can imagine that's it's hard enough to believe. So they're right. thinking, are you, are you drinking? Are you just... Is this have something to do with anxiety regarding the upcoming wedding? What's going on here? And especially in, the, in that time period too, in the 1920s, because this is that's sort of, you know, you're you're a good 20, 25 years removed from sort of like the the really big spiritualist movement. Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely. Like reacting negatively. Uh huh. Uh huh. Towards any of those things. Point well taken. I hadn't even thought of that, but <clears throat> exactly. Um. Anyway, so eventually they all kind of dismiss him as as having had some sort of a an episode. So uh, a few days passed, uh, Clarence and this girl get married. And that evening, they are holding as what most people will know as a chivalry. If, if people don't know what that is, <laughs> it's where the guests of the wedding come and they stand outside the bedroom window of the newly wedded bride and groom, proceed to make all kinds of noise, fire off guns, beat on pots and pans in an attempt to keep the newlyweds from consummating their, their relationship. Yep. So anyway, that evening there's this chivalry going on outside of the bedroom window, and I'm again I'm not sure if this was a different house that Clarence and his bride had moved into, or if they were still at the same house with Clarence's family or what. But during the proceedings, and well, I'll get to that part of it in a minute. Somehow, somehow a bullet travels through the window of the bedroom where Clarence and his bride are, where he is undressing to get into bed. And he's in nothing but his long underwear. The bullet hits Clarence directly in the abdomen. He's taken to the hospital where he dies three days later. Wow. Now, somehow they claim to have figured out that the bullet came from his older brother's rifle. The brother claimed that it might have, but if it did, it ricocheted off of something and went through the window. Uh, the community wants to lynch up the brother for the murder of Clarence, but the father comes, steps in and he says, look, we've already, you know, the family's already been through enough turmoil. We've already lost one son. Don't make us lose another. And they let him go. But so that's the suspicion, whether, uh, the older brother did this on purpose out of spite, if it was an accident and 
all the things leading up to it where Clarence saw himself. Yeah. You know, was that real? Was that, you know, little, it's a little premonition of his death sort of thing. Yeah. Um, all right. Anyway, so the, the first thing uh, on the uh, chivalry side, so uh, the version that we had, and of course my family's all from Kentucky. I'm from here in Pekin, obviously, but the rest of my family's all from Kentucky. So what they would do instead of staying up late at night and trying to keep them awake, what you do is you would try to beat them back to the house before they got there, uh-huh. and then you move all their shit, <laughs> right? You would move all their furniture from upstairs to downstairs. You would nail the front door shut. Oh, yeah. You'd nail it. windows, do the whole thing, right? Well, that's just sinister. <laughs> it is. It, it also seems like a lot of work. Right? <laughs> In general. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a story, and you may have heard this before in Washington County, uh, about um, Adam Brewer. Adam Brewer was the very last legal distiller in Washington County, as far as I know, until I got into the industry. Um, so Brewer, he had been a distiller out around Cave River Valley. He had eventually ended up buying the old Clifty Distillery, the old Henry Robertson Distillery, the main distillery in Cave River Valley. And, of course, you have that big hill that you have to go down in Cave River Valley, right? Right. So prohibition's coming up on its end. Everybody's about to go back into it. He saved up the money. He's got the money for the license. He's putting the old distillery back to work, building the old, building the old mill back to what it had once been at one point in time. One night or one morning, he wakes up and he tells his wife, "He goes, I had a dream that I died." And she, you know, she dismissed it, whatever. And, and uh, she asked him, and, and maybe this is he either saw it or maybe he was planning suicide. I don't know, but it doesn't mm-hmm. make much sense to me that he'd be planning suicide while also. Why would you pay your licensing and all that stuff to get your distillery sure. up and going? And she asked him, all right, well, how did you die in the dream? She goes, I flipped the buggy off of the off the hill going down to the mill and distillery. And uh, sure enough, that day, he flipped the buggy and died going back to Cave River Valley. Isn't so, that weird? Mm-hmm. Yep. I would not heard that story, but um, but it reminded me of something. Now, this, this wasn't a... Uh, this episode wasn't a precursor to death, but my grandfather... Um, was uh, went to the army right at the end of World War II, mm-hmm. and um, prior to that time, he was just a young man. Prior to that time, he had a dream one night that he was with a group of men, and they were walking down this road, and the road went up over this hill. And when he got to the top of the hill, he looked down into the valley that they're about to proceed down into, and on the right side of the road. There was a green barn with a tractor sitting out in front of it. Mm-hmm. That was his whole dream. That was it. But right. he said it was so vivid and real, it just kind of took him off guard. Yeah. So a short while later, in the army, he's sent over to Germany. Now this is the time the war has just ended, and this, he's kind of like the cleanup crew and, and right, just kind of trying to get everything in order. Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> one day he's out with his uh, platoon, whatever his group of men and they're marching down this road and he suddenly looks up and he sees this hill and he's like this is my dream That's it. when I've I get to it. the top of this hill there's a green barn and a tractor down in this next valley yeah sure enough got to the top of the hill looked down and it, exactly like he saw it in his dream kind of a deja vu sort of thing yeah 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 so I don't know I've I've never had anything like that happen I've heard plenty of stories of that kind of thing to, mm-hmm. so much that and my, my grandpa was not the kind of person to speak in hyperbole or just to make up things for shock right. value. He was like a conservative Christian kind of yeah. 
thou shalt not lie kind of right, guy. Right. So it wasn't like him to just make up stories for effect. Yeah. I mean, this if he said it happened, that's and that's that, what happened. That to generation him. in particular, especially the ones that went through World War II, a lot of them they they, they weren't like that. They were, that's not the most of them. I mean, there's always exceptions, but yeah, you know, like <clears throat> I had Dad on the show and you know just talking here for a second, uh, and he told a story about one time when he was a kid, when he was a teenager, uh, they saw. You know what you'd classify for all intents and purposes as a UFO over this hill right outside mm-hmm. the studio here, mm-hmm. um, and described it. You know, round sphere it looked like it had kind of a, a darker section in the middle that maybe had some kind of writing on it. Whatever. Right. Talked about people stopping on the highway looking at it. The guy that owned the uh, service station down here, he saw it. They called him, talked to them. Um, but my grandfather, interestingly enough, he had he was in World War II and he was with Tech Five, which was like. Uh, the guys that were literally like building like the emergency airways on the on the islands right. right so he's seen all kinds of stuff whatever and my grandma was very strict baptist they lived in this house at the time uh-huh. uh so she's not like prone to like believing in anything that's not you know in the bible right my grandpa was baptist as well but i'm not sure he was baptist in the same way. i think he was baptist <laughs> by proxy because he didn't right. have much choice uh but what my dad said that I found so interesting in that story, and we aired that as one of the field recordings on here, I think, or in one of the bonus episodes, because uh, I asked him, like, well, you know, Grandma's, like, freaking out. Like, what is this thing? And, and you know, what did Grandpa do? And Dad goes, we basically got up. He kind of looked at it, and he said, hmm, and went and sat back down, <laughs> which tells me, like, <laughs> I feel like he must have seen something like that before. You know what right, I mean? Like, right. where he's just like, no, it'll go away eventually yeah <laughs> you know what i mean so wow i don't know that he did but i suspect that that's the case right maybe so. well you know the and and uh <clears throat> that what's what are the story uh, uh foo fighters mm-hmm. from world war ii have you yeah. heard about oh, yeah okay and bomber pilots and fighter pilots would claim to see these flying objects that they could not identify yeah. uh and they just called them foo fighters mm-hmm. I, th- I think at the time they suspected it was some sort of enemy experimental aircraft but then they right. come got to the end of world war ii and found out now the the germans the japanese they were they seeing were these same things it. and they were all wondering what the heck it was and you know we're back into that now too with uh with all the all the you know whatever you want to call it soft disclosure or whatever that's coming out now mm-hmm. you know there was uh just a, an episode of rogan uh this past week uh where they had one of the fighter pilots on that had seen uh the various different things in the sky and and he had remarked something interesting which was you know, they were initially seeing these things off the coast of the Atlantic when they mm-hmm. were doing their training, and they didn't really notice them that much until they had updated their radar. And when they updated their radar, they started showing up. And it wasn't like one or two. It was a bunch of them. And their concern wasn't so much like, what is it? Although on a personal level, they were curious about it. Mm-hmm. Their concern was, hey, there's something here air traffic safety-wise that's a problem. Right, yeah. Right? And then so they he was talking about they moved down into off the coast of Florida, you know, and he goes, I don't know if they followed us or if they're just everywhere because now they're seeing them off the coast of Florida. And then as the conversation went, you know, apparently they're seeing these things in Russia. They're seeing them in China. Like it's a, it's a worldwide phenomenon, you know, and, and who knows what that is. Maybe it's could be interdimensional stuff, could be whatever aliens, quote unquote, whatever you yeah. want to call it. But I do find it interesting that they didn't start. I mean, it's not that they haven't seen these things before. But not on this level until they updated their radar to some way. Like it's seeing something that's always been there, right? But you couldn't see it before yeah. for some reason. So that's that's fascinating. I I don't know. I sometimes I sort of lean to toward a theory that this is just very high tech, advanced 
military yep. aircraft that are being experimented with yep. and, and tested, and that's what's showing up. Um, I kind of lean toward that theory because if that's the case, even these military fighter pilots wouldn't be, they wouldn't be told about that. Right. They wouldn't know about that. Exactly. Um, and then I've, have you ever watched, a, do you know the F-22 Raptor? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, have yeah. you ever watched videos of a pilot just doing an air show in one of yeah, those? Oh, yeah. And how, yeah. That thing flies in such weird ways that if you were standing outside at night and there was just like a, a, a light on the plane yeah and you saw that light doing these maneuvers you would think you would think that something weird was happening yeah yeah so i don't know and i do know this the the f-22 raptor was being produced and tested years and years and years before anybody ever heard a word about it so i don't know is that what it is i i I have no idea Mm. but and the the only the only bad thing about it is like and i don't i don't disagree with you i think that probably at least the vast majority of it is that What's disturbing to me about that, if that's the case, is why would you put whatever that object is, if it's man-made and mm-hmm. it's part of, of, of our secret ops or whatever, why right. would you put that in the flight paths of people training and fighter jets, right? Mm-hmm. Not that, not that you know, quote-unquote, the U.S. government hasn't done other things, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? Just and as, because uh, that's the other side of the logic of it is, well, why wouldn't they? Because isn't that the perfect place to see if somebody notices them? Well, right. So yeah, yeah. It, it, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Like the uh, I had my good friend Andy Kasperzak on here uh, on season one, and Andy's really into the UFO A tip thing and all that stuff. And uh, for as much soft disclosure as is go is quote unquote going on, um, it sure feels like some of it's a little bit misdirection as well. It does. You know? It feels real weird, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't understand that. Um. Uh. My parents it just reminded me of another little uh, UFO-related bit of business because um, my parents are actually out in Vegas right now, mm-hmm. and uh, I lived out there oh a few years ago, just for a few months. And at the international airport there in Vegas, which sits at the southern end of the Strip, you can drive by and you see these passenger planes sitting out on the tarmac, right, with no tail numbers. Yep, which is supposedly not legal mm-hmm. according to the aviation association but um yeah these planes have no tail markings but they leave from las vegas every morning they come back every evening mm-hmm. i've seen the planes and i've heard people who have approached people that they've seen get off these planes and say hey what's that plane and where where's it been and these people literally will say I don't know what plane you're talking about. Right, right. Yeah, they'll play it off. And they, they, uh-huh. that was they, those... These are civilian workers yeah. flying up to Area 51, yeah. supposedly. That was one of those yeah. things that uh, Bob Lazar talked about in the in the uh, the documentary they did on him here uh, maybe two years ago or whatever, was the airplanes yeah. that were out yeah. there um, and how they commuted back and forth and all well, that stuff. I can, I can vouch for him on that much of it. Those planes are there. Mm-hmm. I've seen them with my own two eyes. They do fly in and out of... Vegas every day, and there are people on them. I don't doubt that at all. <laughs> like we had, we had Stephanie Vines on here. She, we were you know obviously focused on the railroad, and she said, uh, "What was it? How would how she word it? Something about uh, you know at one point in time there was a train that went through here that had some kind of government government waste on it, right? And 
they literally had people from the government tailing the train. And I'm like, well, that's great. That's wonderful. That, you know, <laughs> considering they wrecked the train in my yard one time. <laughs> yeah, nice. You right? know, that's nice to know. So <laughs> who knows what that was? So, but well, cool, Daniel. Uh, before we uh, before we wrap this thing up, if you want to talk about, uh, it, can people find the Actors Theater online? Uh, also, I know that you're planning on doing. Uh, another tour similar to the murder and mayhem, mm-hmm. but again based a little bit more in the paranormal. Presumably. It's it's in the planning. Uh, one of the agreements I, I've been pushing Jeremy to uh, for us to do the murder and mayhem walk again that we just did a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, he's always claiming that he doesn't have time. So one of the agreements was that <laughs> if he would do it he's again, too busy just enjoying his haunted house. That's that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but if, if he did it again, I would do research. And come up with this, uh, I don't know if I'm calling it Ghosts and Ghouls Tour or something. Yeah. But it's going to be more about ghosts, the paranormal, that kind of thing. But actual stories that have come from people and events on the square again. So it'll be basically the same route, only completely different stories. Yeah. So we're excited about that. Um, Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, as far as the theater... Uh, you can find us our, our uh, Facebook page. You just go to Facebook and type in uh, Washington County Actors Theater. You can find information about upcoming shows or auditions if you're interested in being involved. We accept everybody. And even if you don't want to be on stage, if you want to help build sets or, or help backstage or run sound or lights, we're always looking for those people as well. So, yeah. What about the, uh, the the tours and stuff that you're doing? Is there an official outlet where people can find information on that as it comes up? Or? Well, because we've not yet gotten uh, a real kind of set schedule of doing those, it's just kind of me and Jeremy getting together and going, okay, when do you have time? When can we do this? Um, we really don't do much advertising until, um, you know, three, four weeks before the actual event. Right. And then uh, I know Jeremy puts it up on the the uh, museum website uh, we advertise it on our Facebook page the, the theater um, you can always look for chalk outlines of bodies <laughs> on the sidewalks on the squares that is an indicator that we have a tour coming up I go up there with my daughter uh, both times that we've done this and she thinks it's uh, the greatest thing to just lay down on the on the sidewalk yep. and let me chase around her with chalk <laughs> Well, and as, as always, Daniel, if you if you guys want a commercial and if you have ghosts, you have a, everything, just let me know, and I'm glad to cut one for you and see if uh, see if we can get people out there from the show as well. And if you guys are listening and that's something you're interested in, even if you're not from Washington County, Indiana, if you find yourself in the area, these tours, whether it's the Cemetery Walk or the Murder and Mayhem Tour or this other one that they're working on now, potentially, they're very much so worth going if you're interested in local history, if you're interested in uh, the darker side of local history in particular, <laughs> It's something that you'll enjoy, and and they are things that you can also take the family to. Although I can't promise that the squirt story won't make kids cry, <laughs> right? Because like if, I know if Penny yeah. had been with us that night, she'd been like the dog died. <laughs> so. All right, Daniel, I appreciate it, man. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been been a lot of fun. Absolutely. What if I told you that there was a government-documented vampire outbreak in Serbia starting in 1726, which directly involved Austrian authorities? Sure, much of the circumstantial evidence could point to the effects of decomposition 
post-mortem. And in fact, the authorities at the time even originally used this explanation to soothe local worries. But that by the end of the strange events, even the trained physicians were using folk terminology used to identify vampirism. According to the accounts of two doctors, Glasser and Fluckinger, the outbreak began in 1726 when a hajak, a word for a Serbian German-speaking soldier working for Austria in exchange for land, named Arnold Paol, fell and broke his neck, but not before he recounted his story of being harassed by a vampire in Kosovo, of which he claimed that he cured himself by the way of eating the grave soil of the beast, as well as ritualistically smearing himself with his blood. After the death of Pale, four people came forward with claims of his now vampiric presence, causing them pain, sickness, weakness, and eventually death. Ten days later, the local military advisor suggested that Pale's grave be opened as he himself had experienced such events previously in life. The grave being opened, note was taken that the corpse was not decomposed, that in fact his veins were still yet full of blood, and fresh blood flowed from his eyes, nose, mouth, and ears. His body was red, and his hair, beard, and nails had all grown. For all intents and purposes, he was recognized as a revenant. Thus, they drove a stake through his heart, to which he reacted with a terrifying scream and a gasp. The head was then cut from the body, and the whole body was incinerated, but the hunt was not yet over. As the villagers proceeded to disinter and dispatch of Pale's four victims in the same way to prevent them from the same damnation he had experienced. This, though, was only the beginning. Five years later, in 1731, in the winter, ten villagers in Medveda, Serbia, died within several weeks of one another, some with no previous illness, and others suffering for up to three days, ranging in age from years 14 to 50, and including a mother and her newborn child. The complaints range from stabs in the side and pains in the chest to fever and muscle spasms and more. The locals blamed the 20-year-old mother, Stana, and her newborn child as the child died unbaptized due to age, and a 50-year-old woman named Malika for the epidemic. As although her neighbors believed Malika to be a good woman, she had once admitted to eating two sheep killed by vampires when she lived in Ottoman-controlled lands. The young Stana also recounted smearing herself with vampire blood in Ottoman lands for protection. Locals believed that both actions would cause the women to become vampires after death. Fluckinger reported that by the 7th of January, 17 people had died in three months and included victims not named by Glasser, as young as 8 and 10 years old. One victim, Stanovchka, was said 
to have gone to bed healthy 15 days earlier, only to awake at midnight, crying that an earlier victim, Milo, had attacked her. Fluckinger reports that Malika, the first to die, had in fact eaten the meat of two sheep killed previously in Kisievo by Paol five years previous. He also recounts Stana's assertion of smearing herself with vampire blood, which would in turn assure her and her child would indeed become vampires upon death. According to Augustine Calame's analysis of the case, a girl named Stanoska, who went to bed in perfect health, awoke in the middle of the night, in a tremble, uttering terrible shrieks, and saying that the son of Milo, who had been dead nine weeks, had nearly strangled her in her sleep. She fell into a languid state from that moment, and at the end of three days she died. What this girl had said of Milo's son made him known at once to be a vampire. He was exhumed and found to be as such. The principal people of the place, with the doctors and surgeons, examined how vampirism could have sprung up again after the precautions they had taken years before. When villagers reported the happenings to Lieutenant Schnezer, the local military administrator, feared contagion and called for Imperial Dr. Glasser. Upon examining patients in December of 1731, Glasser found no evidence of contagion and blamed local religious fasting for malnutrition. At this time, families were gathering together in shifts for protection during sleep, determined that this was the work of vampires and it would not stop until the evil was eradicated. Glasser finally consented to exhuming some of the bodies to soothe local superstition with science, but was shocked to find that many were not decomposed at all and had evidence of blood consumption about their mouths. Glasser recorded his findings to send to the commandant, recommending authorities to in fact quote-unquote execute the vampires. Schnezer then sent this report to Supreme Command in Belgrade, who sent a second commission to investigate. This commission included military surgeon Fluckinger, two officers, two lieutenant colonels, and two other surgeons. On the 7th of January, they, village elders, and local gypsies opened the graves. Their report mirrored glassers, finding that 12 of the 17 victims were not decomposed and exhibit traits common to the vampire. The bodies were autopsied and internal organs found filled with fresh blood. The corpses were plump, of reddish color, not pale, and while the old skin and nails on the hands and feet had fallen away, new skin and nails had grown in their place. The surgeons summarized that the bodies were indeed in a vampiric condition. After examination, the gypsies beheaded the bodies, burned them, and spread their ashes in the West Morova River. Calme notes, they discovered at last, after much search, that the defunct Arnold Paul had killed not only the four persons of whom we have spoken, but also several oxen, of which the new vampires have eaten, and amongst others the son of Milo, 
Upon these indications, they resolved to disinter all those who had died within a certain time. Amongst 40, 17 were found with all the most evident signs of vampirism. So they transfixed their hearts and cut off their heads. Also, then cast their ashes into the river. All the information and executions we have just mentioned were made judicial in proper form and attested by several officers who were garrisoned in the country by the chief surgeons of the regiments and by the principal inhabitants of the place. The verbal process of it was sent towards the end of last January to the Imperial Council of War at Vienna, which had established a military commission to examine into the truth of all these circumstances. Such was the declaration of all involved. Hey guys, if you've been following my career at all, or following the If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything podcast, you've probably also heard about my other shows, Distiller's Talk, as well as the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute. One thing you may not be aware of, however, is that we actually have a separate website called thealchemistcabinet.com. And the really cool thing about thealchemistcabinet.com is we have our very own store there. It's called The Warehouse One. And you can go there right now and pick up all your Christmas gifts. Or if it's after the New Year's or even before, if you're at all into if you have ghosts or you're into the art of distillation, you can go to the Warehouse One right now and buy various different if you have ghosts, you have everything and uh, one piece at a time distilling institute apparel and or merchandise. Things such as shirts and hats and stickers and my book, The Alchemist Cabinet Philosophy, Volume 1, or the two DVDs we're currently offering. A short history of distilling in Indiana's Black Forest as delivered in a speech to uh, the Salem Depot and or the Alan Bishop Experience documentary directed and produced by Bo Cumberland and Jolie Kasperzak. There's all kinds of cool stuff over there. I even occasionally have some extra distillation slash homebrewing related materials such as staves or yeast or unique grains that I offer over there. There's going to be all kinds of new stuff coming up. Kim and I are actually working on an oracle deck specifically for if you have ghosts, you have everything and our spiritual work with this podcast and personally that'll be up before too long. So please go over to thealchemistcabinet.com and place an order. All that money obviously goes back into this show as well as into the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute, and it helps our family out. This is one of the ways that we pay for our bills and also pay for our hobbies, such as all the software we use for this podcast, etc. We really appreciate your support. We love you guys, and we'll catch you soon.